This is uh, Advanced Patient Care Theory 1, uh, Unit 3, Part 10B, Respiratory Trauma. So, um, diaphragmatic hernia, traumatic diaphragmatic hernia is a hyper-rare event. Um, and so, if you, if you get uh, severe abdominal trauma uh, via whatever mechanism, it, it can cause uh, the stomach to be, um, to perforate basically the diaphragm and end up in the thoracic cavity. Most commonly happens on the left side. It would have to be really severe blunt uh, abdominal trauma for that to happen. <coughs> and um, typically it'll present with um, uh, two things. One, uh, chest pain, shortness of breath. When you listen to the lungs, you'll hear diminished air entry on, the, on that side, typically left. And, uh, but what you may also hear are bowel sounds in the chest. What you might also see is when you look at the abdomen, it appears a little concave on that side. So if you've got a history of blunt force trauma to the abdomen, like significant blunt force trauma to the abdomen, diminished air entry on this side, plus bowel sounds, plus a concave abdomen, uh, then you might be dealing with a diaphragmatic hernia. Yeah? What about like J thrust or thrust? No, no, it would require a great deal more trauma uh, uh, to, to, to cause a diaphragmatic hernia. It's going to be like so a birth defect, Yeah, you can be born with it. There's congenital. I'll show you uh, an x-ray of that. So, so, yeah, you would have to fall like on a tree stump or, um, you know, like a steering wheel without, a, you know, in an old model car without, without seat belts or airbags. Unlikely to produce that kind of trauma, but maybe bicycle uh, handlebar. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Why does it come through the left rock? Well, just because the stomach and the uh, cardiac sphincter is sort of on the leftish, and so yeah, most commonly left. Uh, right. So, so this is what a congenital diaphragmatic hernia looks like. This is a newborn, uh, and basically they just go in and surgically. Um, open up the diaphragm, pull the abdominal contents back into the abdomen, and um, now the, they typically have a hypoplastic left lung, so the left lung is underdeveloped, and um, uh, I don't know what the risk of pneumothorax is with those newborns, but probably take a while for that lung to expand, and they probably have to watch that kid really closely over the coming, you know, three to four years or so. Um, so pulmonary contusions, we sort of, we've already talked about that. Um, so um, caused by rapid deceleration forces, not necessarily associated with rib fractures. But, you know, think about all the organs in your body. When they travel at a certain speed, um, you know, because the lungs have different uh, weights, different parts of the lungs have different weights, different sizes, uh, and the human body was never probably designed to travel at high speeds and come to sudden stops. But when you get acceleration, deceleration forces, and you get one area of brain, lungs, vessels traveling at a faster speed than another, you get shearing forces, right? So you get, uh, and you also get blunt force trauma with the lungs hitting the inner, inner rib cage, with the heart hitting the inner rib cage, with the brain hitting the inner table of the skull, and so on and so forth. <coughs> and um, so you can get um, rupture of alveoli, uh, some bleeding in the in the in the lung parenchyma and uh, some localized crackles. Um, so more than 50% of patients with blunt chest trauma will have pulmonary contusions. And uh, the signs and symptoms. Uh, uh, I've 
I think I've maybe seen one patient with chest trauma who had hemoptysis. That's probably a, a later sign, like 24 hours down the road. But early signs would be shortness of breath, you know, or difficulty breathing, tachypnea, cough, and some localized crackles with or without uh, obvious chest wall trauma, tachycardia guiding, guarding rather. Uh, thoracic aortic dissection, so um, happens when there's a, a small tear in the tunica uh, intima, which is the inner layer. Now, um, when patients tear the aorta, um, if they tear their aorta, they're going to exsanguinate at the scene. I tended, uh, any of you ever uh, taken a Coursera course? No? Okay. I, uh, I took a Coursera course on, um, they're free, most of them are free, on uh, resuscitation science. And it was uh, with uh, Dr. Ben Abella from University of Pennsylvania, I want to say. Anyway, the focus was on um, cardiac arrest uh, and a little bit about therapeutic hypothermia and some of the things sort of coming down the pike with respect to uh, cardiac arrest. And one of the things he talked about was this idea that, you know, in 30 years from now, uh, what medics may be doing in the field is when you've got a patient who's gone into cardiac arrest on the scene from a trauma, no resuscitation, just put them into suspended animation. So that might be either uh, put them in a, in a bath uh, that takes them down to 15 degrees Celsius or um, use some sort of chemical induction of uh, suspended animation where you drop the metabolic, like a sulfur dioxide, I think it is, uh, or I can't remember, uh, but um, where you drop the metabolism down to almost zero. What's that? What's that drug that people take that people don't take? But you've seen it in movies where your heart rate drops down to almost nothing, where you can't palpate a pulse and people look dead. Sorry? It's like the one where they fake dead so they yeah. escape or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's got a laptop? 18. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, they've actually, with this chemical compound, uh, NASA's actually done studies, animal studies of this, uh, to look at uh, ways of putting people into suspended animation for uh, long space travel, right? And, um, but in medicine, it might be used for those kinds of patients where they put them into a state of suspended animation where they drop their metabolism down to almost nothing, um, get them into the OR, do some repair, uh, replenish the blood loss, and then slowly resuscitate them. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see where medicine goes in the next 30 years. And you guys are going to see a lot of it because we're, we're on the knee of that exponential curve in terms of technology. So, you know, the, the changes that, have ha that I've seen in the last, you know, almost 40 years, uh, the number of changes you're going to see will probably be triple or quadruple what I've witnessed. Uh, so it's going to be incredible. Uh, you know, I had a cerebral orgasm when I saw a pulse oximeter and entitled CO2 monitor for the first time. Um, the things you guys are going to see, you know. Yeah, yeah, the first, is that, as, did that ever happen? In one they successfully attached it, but obviously it was a cadaver and someone who was brain dead. All the vessels and everything, yeah. yeah. So the question is, uh, will anyone actually survive a head transplant? That'll be interesting. Yeah, the key piece for that was they had to find a substrate for the uh, nurse stem uh, cells. Yeah. Um, and they got it from a 21-year-old Queen student who was trying to make a superconductor make his gaming computer faster. 
using his own cells? No, no, no just using oh. the substrate he created. The oh. Microns that are oh, interesting. Fiber optic. Yeah. Um, to increase gaming capability, and then they patented it, and now they're using it in the kidney. Something like a hundred, no, four, four hundred ninety million dollars overnight. Nice. Just to use it in that one study, right? It was over here. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. It's available at Best Buy, a Best Buy near you. Uh, okay. So, um, so if you don't rupture your your aorta, uh, and um, you end up, so the the um, the aorta, as you know, is suspended to the spinal column by the uh, ligamentum arteriosum, which is a remnant of the um, the patent ductus arteriosus, and. Um, when you have acceleration deceleration forces, your aorta moves forward and bends, and so you can get a tear in the intimal layer, and that uh, can result in bleeding that dissects between the tunica intima and the tunica media, and uh, that you know if if it um, if it dissects sort of like it, the dissection be here right, but if it dissects backwards and into the left subclavian artery, you get a decreased blood pressure in the left arm compared to the right. And they say a uh, difference in systolic blood pressure of at least 15 millimeters of mercury with chest pain consistent with thora thoracic aortic dissection as opposed to cardiac ischemia is suggestive of, or should you lead you to suspe suspect um, thoracic aortic dissection. So if you're gonna take blood pressure in both arms, whether it's a cardiac patient or a trauma patient, it should be the same person taking the blood pressure. It should be a manual blood pressure, uh, and you just go from one arm to the next, right? Not an NIBP, because NIBPs are notoriously inaccurate. So um, you get the pseudoaneurysm that occurs. Uh, in these patients, uh, they are ticking time long. If you have any reason to suspect thoracic aortic dissection, even if you're wrong, uh, you know, with all trauma patients, we keep seen time to a minimum, but this is where you want to get them the hell out of there as quickly as possible. This is not the time to put a ket on, right? This is the time to, you know, just get them out and immobilize them as best as possible. Does anyone put keds on anymore? No. When's the last time you put a ket on? School. School, yeah. For a woman, it was stuck on a coat, and she was so septic she couldn't stand up, and it worked very well. Oh, yeah, just as a lifting. Yeah, it was the only time yeah, that's awesome. Well, and you know what? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we might even want to keep it just for those odd MacGyver-ish type situations, right? You never know. And uh, it's probably a good pelvic splint. Um, you know, if you wrap it around the pelvis and expect a pelvic fracture. Because you can tighten those straps nicely around the pelvis. Yeah, probably just want to put some padding around there, but yeah. Uh, so falls from significant height, motor vehicle collisions, anything with a high acceleration, deceleration force. We had a guy, um, we had a guy who jumped, jumped off a bridge. Auntie, you'll know the bridge I'm talking about. Uh, jumped off a bridge and he was, uh, he was laying on the ground. Um, and we weren't sure if he was a jumper because he was just laying flat. He had no visible or palpable trauma and he looked very peaceful. So, you know, we didn't know for sure whether he had, you know, taking a walk down there and then taking an overdose and falling asleep. It was winter time. The ground was pretty solid, uh, frozen. Um, but, uh, you know, it was right below the bridge and his car was up there. So it all pointed to trauma. And this is all sort of going through our heads within seconds. 
And uh, anyway, uh, we ended up transporting and attempting to resuscitate this guy, and uh, uh, but no visible or palpable trauma. And he left a little uh, indent in the frozen ground from where he'd fallen. We, we knew that when we lifted him up. And um, he tore his aorta. Uh, uh, that's just acceleration, deceleration, right, from the fall. So, so you get these trauma patients who look uh, fine externally. <coughs> and um, they turn. So pretty rare. Um, has anyone had a patient with a traumatic thoracic aortic dissection? You have, eh? Uh, not traumatic. Okay, so it was a it was medical? A BSA. Yeah. Yeah. Aortic dissection. Yeah. No, he didn't cause it. Yeah. Trust me, you don't cause that from chest compressions. Yeah. No, I it's mean, not. They were. Yeah. They were the calendar. Yeah. You're more likely to. Uh, you're more likely to cause cardiac injury. Just uh, if. How many of you have been to an autopsy? So when you look at auto when you look at uh, you know when they open up the thoracic cavity, um, the the distance between the sternum and the spine is not that great, and the spine comes to a point, right? So if you do compressions hard enough, you might do some cardiac damage, but probably not going to uh, tear the aorta. Not likely to get a thoracic aortic dissection, but uh, <coughs> so so we already talked about this. Did you guys get a save? We didn't do saves back then. <laughs> There were no safe. There was no saves back then. It wasn't a thing. Yeah. And uh, when you're working air, when patients go into arrest, uh, you just shock them and you get them back. Like you get a lot of saves that way because um, not a lot of saves, not a lot of. But you get these unstable angina patients. You fly and you just uh, shock them once and that's it. Because they're witness arrest, right? So. Um, but um, speaking of saves, I really think we should redefine saves because I think. To define it as purely cardiac arrest with a neurological, neurologically intact is, it's all about timing. It's not about your skills. We don't even really have that. Like in the doctor, they give you a save. They just, like you get them to the hospital. If they die, you get them to the hospital. Even if they die. You get a save for that? So in terms of summary for, uh, for chest wall trauma, we're gonna obviously, you know, we're going to assess um, uh, what they call in PHS X, A, B, C, D, E now, X being exsanguinating bleeding. So, uh, uh, but for thoracic trauma, it's really largely ABCs, uh, SPO2s and room air, ECG, and total CO2. If you got the luxury of side stream O2 uh, on a PRN basis, but if you've got someone with attention pneumothorax, um, even if their SPO2s are good, we generally give high flow O2s uh, because high flow O2 has been, been shown to diminish the size of the pneumo over a long period of time, like many, many hours. And the reason for that, quite simply, is that when you've got, um, when you've got air in the pleural space, you've got a combination of nitrogen and oxygen, mostly nitrogen, like so it's 78% nitrogen. And when you uh, fill the lungs with a higher concentration of oxygen, what happens is nitrogen flows from an area of high concentration to a lower concentration. So nitrogen will flow from the pleural space to the uh, lung space and will actually diminish the amount of uh, gas in the pleural space. But that's over a long period of time, over hours. So, uh, you know, give you an example. I had a kid with a simple pneumo um, in a doctor's office, 
and uh, he had a saturation of 98%. We gave him a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute. And um, when I got to the hospital, the doc said, oh, good, you guys have got uh, NRB on them. Excellent, thank you um, for that reason. So, uh, so needle thoracostomy for markedly diminished or absent errantry with other signs, uh, PPV, PRN. When, when you're talking about a pneumothorax, the risk with PPV is that you may um, it may exacerbate the pneumo, so it may convert a simple pneumo to a tension pneumo in a shorter period of time, so that's a risk. But if you got a PPV, you got a PPV. If they're, you know, three-word dyspnea and altered, altered mentally, they get PPV no matter what, right? Minimal scene time, transport, and as I say, you can, you know, if you've got a patient with a suspected pneumo, you can wait until they deteriorate before you call a base hospital doc, but I wouldn't wait too long, uh, especially if you're in an area where you're not sure that the you know, phone signals are sketchy. I would call and just say what, you, what you've got and just say, you know, I'm not looking for an order for a needle thoracostomy, but I would like, uh, if you have no objection, I would like a PRN order in case he gets worse or she gets worse. Right? <coughs> then you've got it. Uh, no, uh, so penetrating trauma. Um, so penetrating trauma is, is um, categorized into low velocity, medium velocity, and high velocity. So uh, low velocity would be things like uh, knife wounds, uh, which which uh, disrupt the structures, the penetrated. We had a guy. Um, I was uh, maybe a month on the job in Toronto in 1984, and there was a fight in a bar, um, and. Um, people were coming out of the bar and we were a second or third crew on the scene and uh, um, the supervisor just asked us to check everyone out so we you know did our due diligence and we're checking everyone out and you know uh, basically stopping people saying you know were you involved in the fight are you hurt anywhere and there was one guy who uh, uh, came out and I said <coughs> were, you in, were you involved in the fight at all he said no I just ran out and I said, um, so you're not hurt? He said, no. And I said, I noticed you got a little hole in your sweater. And he had a hole in the sweater. I said, do you mind humoring me and just lifting up uh, your sweater? So he was a little surprised to see the hole in the sweater. And he lifted up and he had this tiny little, you know, like maybe centimeter laceration that looked like nothing at all. And uh, we took him to uh, the local hospital just to be on the safe side. <coughs> Safe side. He was stabbed in the liver. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> and he had no idea. Right. So um, the, the point is, uh, in an adrenaline-charged situation, people just don't know, right? They don't feel things. They're distracted. And uh, uh, he must have gotten close enough to the guy who was uh, had the knife that he, you know, uh, he thought he just you know, caught his sweater on something as he was running out, but, uh, but he was stabbed. <coughs> so, uh, medium velocity. So, uh, this we bullet wounds from most types of handguns and air powered pellet guns. Um, I told you about our guy who was shot on the right side of the ch uh, left side of the chest and had diminished air on the right side. He was shot with a, um, with a 22. Uh, now I don't know a lot about guns, but is that, that's considered low velocity? Yeah. It's about as low velocity as you can get, right, for a rifle? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, int interesting call in a lot of ways. So, so you had this 
tiny little entrance wound that wasn't bleeding and uh, one of the police officers had a big pressure dressing on it and we took it off and just left it as it was and then we put a Asherman chest seal on it <coughs> but um, we uh, he was he was lying on the grass in his front lawn and uh, we sat him up had a real quick look and we were we we got him on our stretcher in like under 30 seconds I would say easily and uh, dispatch had already called area ML said we're gonna rendezvous with us on a farmer's field across the road and um, so we uh, we loaded them in our back of the ambulance and then we couldn't get out because police blocked our egress you ever run into this problem yeah, police I mean fire blocked the egress yeah yeah, yeah. this is a real problem right and why we don't have conversations with the other emergency service about this i don't know but my entire career has been you know a case at least once a year where you can't you have no egress it drives me nuts anyway so um yeah don't get me started on the tow trucks oh, okay. yeah. you can get them they get ticketed now in peel i don't know if they get ticketed everywhere yeah, though it's, uh, is it Ontario province wide okay yeah. yeah good to know anyway <coughs> Uh, so we got him off the scene and he was flown to a trauma center and um, interesting thing uh, the uh, I spoke to the flight medic afterwards they found the bullet lodged under uh, near his scapula but it was it was right at the skin so it was bulging out at the skin <laughs> and he had a pneumo on the right side and a hemoneumo anyway they put a chest tube in and he was he was fine <coughs> but um, um, we asked we asked Um, not typically. No. Uh, maybe now, though, it's that's supposed to happen. The, the, that was part of an inquest, actually, uh, that recommended it. But um, I don't know. Are you getting feedback from Sunnybrook? It's usually for trauma. Really they're working on. Are they working on? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, which is good. But um, he wouldn't tell us how he was shot, <laughs> and uh, so I don't know what was I going on. But um, let me let me just pause this for a second. So, <coughs> so high velocity would include uh, bullet wounds caused by rifles and wounds resulting from military weapons. Um, so, anyone recognize this object? One of those magnet No, it's an antenna. Yeah, it's an old antenna, like a car antenna or a radi old radio antenna. Yeah, I don't know. It's only on the internet. <laughs> That's his chest. Yeah, so you can see his, his mask. What did you think it was? It looks like a real lo like focused like piece of the knee there. Like just cresting <laughs> cresting the knee. Like you look at the It's an optical <laughs> illusion. Yeah, get close up, nice angle. It's a hell of a knee. <laughs> and a very hairy <laughs> knee. Well, why is there like bumps everywhere on this guy? Like, you mean Well, they look like they're sticking to I don't know. Can we move on? Okay. We'll revisit that later. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, uh, when it comes to uh, the extent of damage internal, it depends on the velocity, depends on the type of bullet, and depends on the, the kinetic, uh, you know, with respect to velocity, the, um, uh, the amount of tissue displacement. So, 
um, there's a, with low velocity, there's a, there may be a temporary cavitation from the, from the bullet, but the faster the bullet, the greater the temporary cavity. And, um, and the tissues have a limit to their elasticity. So with uh, velocities <coughs> of 2,700 uh, feet per second, for example, uh, you can get permanent cavities. So um, this sort of thing where the bullet goes through, creates a cavity that exceeds the tissue elasticity, and you end up with a much larger injury, almost like an explosive type wound uh, internally. And then there's bullet fragmentation and things like that as well that can happen. We had um, my first, uh, yeah, and the point of this was just to show how small GSWs can be and how unimpressive they can be. Um, so, you know, we don't know the outcome of that Hamilton case uh, that happened, but there was, you know, from what we know from the media reports, there was, uh, you know, some of the things that happened were the, sounds like the crew were informed that it was a pellet gun and probably just assumed it was a pellet gun and made the second uh, assumption, which is a bad assumption, that how bad can it be if it's a pellet wound? Uh, and uh, when it turned out it was, a, it was a gun, a handgun, not a pellet gun. And um, so making some, some assumptions can be uh, really bad for the patient, ultimately terrible for your career, right? Especially when it comes to GSWs where wounds can be really, really tiny and don't appear significant at all. But the internal damage can be significant, even with medium velocity weapons. <coughs> Are they potentially getting charged? They have been charged. They have been charged. With what? We, uh, <coughs> so, uh, this is a mock exit wound. That's not a true exit wound, but, um, anyway, the, the, yeah, so message being that, uh, uh, if it's a high velocity weapon, the exit wounds are typically larger. It's like ex, uh, electrocutions from high voltage wires. You get an entrance wound and an exit wound. It's a blowout wound. <coughs> <laughs> so, um, we've already talked about this. The, uh, the thing with the Asherman chest seal is you've got to wipe the blood off from around the area, so that's not always a practical thing to do. But if you're going to put a flutter valve or any kind of uh, dressing on, you're probably going to do the same thing. I'll tell you, uh, the dressing I love is elastoplastate. Nobody carries elastoplastate, but it is the best thing ever for chest wounds. It's, it's like a stretchy tape. It's a roll. Big roll. They have it at the hospitals. Big roll. We used we used it for securing chest tubes, and it's the best thing ever for sticking onto the skin. I yeah, honestly. Like a thin tensor bandage that's sticky. Yeah. No, like no, those 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 are self-adhering. This okay. one's actually sticky. Okay. Yeah. So similar, but yeah, it's it's one's <laughs> Yeah. So those will work when you're wrapping around a limb. Yeah. Elastoplast is what you need if you're taping over a wound on the chest or the abdomen, right? <laughs> so if you had like a abdominal evisceration, <laughs> you put a large dressing on there, you need to, to secure it. The tape that we carry would be useless. So you need something like an elastoplast tape. If we had a patient who had multiple uh, gunshot wounds, say four mm. yeah. to the same side, are we okay to just use like a flutter valve on one or two and then use an occlusive on the other? Because yeah, I don't think anyone would criticize you for that. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I would. Probably gonna be dead. Probably. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. We don't. We don't need any of that negativity, Morningwood. Um, so. 
another question is, if you chest somebody and the chest becomes occluded with blood, yeah. what is the appropriate course of action? Take a syringe to it and aspirate it. That's what I would do. Aspirate, don't push saline in. Aspirate. Yeah. Oh, you could put a bit of saline in. Yeah, there's no harm in that either, probably. It was an EMCA question. Really? It was and an EMCA question? So, yeah, so that's why it, it, the EMCA question was reading something along the lines of, um, so, you know, it's like a scenario, and then you treat the patient and multiple questions about the same patient. Yeah, yeah. And one of the questions was, your chest needle becomes occluded, and then, like, the option for to AMCA. push saline in. One was to aspirate. One was to remove it. Did you write the ACP exam by mistake? No, no. For the ACP EMCA, like I have a couple of friends that wrote it. Oh. And they okay. were asking because they're like, uh, there's nothing like that. It's cut and dry with ELS. Like a there's nothing that cut and dry anywhere. Yeah. So I'm not even sure. But then I thought about it. And yeah. I was like, well, what if they gave it to us? Well, it sounds like it's opinion-based, too. So do we know what the right answer is for that? No, that's what I was asking. Oh. <laughs> so that question got taken <laughs> Yeah, it probably got taken out. So if you were going to flush it, how much would you flush it with? Because it seems like the I wouldn't flush it. I'd try to aspirate. Okay. Uh, or you contact the base hospital doc and say there's no air movement. The, the, I did have air movement, but it may be clotted. What do you suggest? And the doc can say, you know, flush it with a little bit of saline. If I was going to flush it with saline, it would be like a half a mil or a, a, a mil max. And, you know, take like a 3cc syringe. Because you're just trying to get a little tiny baby clot out of the tip of that thing, right? Technically, if you take a needle out and put another one in the same hole, you are not performing a new. What are the chances that you can fork up that? You've already passed. Yeah, I don't know where that's written. But uh, now the alternative is just take a little air, right? So two cc's of air in a syringe and just push it because you gotta you got access to the plural space anyway um, so just a little bit of air yeah good question so well every exams every exam is going to be different right <coughs> Every exam is going to be different, so they take from a large pool of questions, mm -hmm. and then they uh, spin them. They they grub them around. So, uh, what I hear from both the AMCA and the ACP exam is that uh, everyone seems to have a theme. So it might be you know a psych theme one year, it might be a cystic fibrosis theme another. I don't know why, because how many of you have seen a CF patient? It's pretty rare, one right? It's pretty rare because they usually seek medical attention on their own. So, and like they're asking like the effects of CPAP on it, if it would be beneficial. Yeah, like what? Uh, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. So yeah, might be. <coughs> Who knows? Who knows? Weird.